This evening, uh, we arrive at Micah 7, the last chapter in this particular series. So we are closing out the book of Micah. We will be looking at Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. You'll find that on page 780 in your pew Bible, um, if you're utilizing a pew Bible. Now, if I were to summarize what we've seen or heard thus far throughout this book in as brief a manner as possible, I would start by noting that Micah was the prophet, a prophet of God who served under three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. I would note that Ahaz was a particularly ungodly king who allied himself with Assyria, the world's superpower at that time. In doing so, he caused Judah to become subservient to an egregiously ungodly pagan nation. And if that wasn't bad enough, he went even further and caused Judah to adopt the pagan Assyrian practices, worship practices, as their own. Ahaz's actions and things that went on even before then resulted in extreme levels of corruption within Judah. The poor was oppressed, were oppressed. The political uh, climate was corrupt at its very best. The rich became self-seeking and all they wanted, they, those who had more, all they wanted was more. This is the expense of those who they should have been helping or serving. And this moral corruption made Judah just as it had made Israel subject to God's judgment. And it is in that light that Micah, in this book, pens a series of warnings or pronouncements. Some say they're articulated in three oracles, which include words of judgment and articulation of the causes of that judgment and words of hope for the future. Now this evening, along with those elements I just mentioned, we'll also get a glimpse into the heart of the prophet, something we should identify with as we go through life in this age. So with those summary thoughts in mind, uh, I want to now read our text. Again, Isaiah 7, starting at verse 1. Woe is me, it says, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are in what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them like a, a, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment have come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies and the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. 
My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see me and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be ex far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Our Heavenly Father, again, we ask that you would open our ears and our hearts concerning these things that you would have us to understand. Reveal the contents of our own hearts and reveal the majesty and the glory of our Lord. Do all to the praise of your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am going to comment on those verses that you just heard under three headings. I'm just going to go right ahead and tell you. And the three, uh, the fruit of unrighteousness will be our first heading. The resolve of the just, that is those who live by faith. And the intercession and sure hope of the just. So first, the fruit of unrighteousness. There is no way around it, brothers and sisters. If you are someone who loves the Lord and the things he loves, then much of what's going on in our society today is causing you to experience some level of angst, of sorrow. This past Tuesday, our government passed a law. They titled the Respect for Marriage Act. The intent, they assert, is to, to codify same-sex marriage as the law of the land. This action, to a large extent, was spurred on by the Supreme Court's striking down of Roe versus Wade, an act that has been met by unbelievably high levels of pure vitriol. Day after day, we continue to hear about increased levels of, of lawlessness, and it's not unusual to see the perpetrators of crime in our society today glorified and honored while the victims of those crimes are accused of being in the wrong. Incidents after incidents of, of corruption are continuously unfolding before our very eyes, and, and those who are tasked with informing the masses 
are themselves so corrupt, they are no longer even able to recognize their own depravity. I remember when I worked as a child protective investigator, it was legal to spank a child, but things had gotten to a point that if you left any bruising, you were subject to having your child removed from your home. You were then subjected to completing a court-ordered case plan before that child would be allowed to return to your home. Now in the culture we have, not only do parents have the green light to mutilate their children, but some states are trying to do so without the parent's permission. Babies are no longer sacrificed as they were in the Old Testament to the God of Molech. Now they're sacrificed on the altar of convenience. Everywhere you look, there are examples of human depravity. And what do they all have in common? What's, what, what's in common in all this? A complete removal of the knowledge of God from our homes, from the marketplace of ideas, and generally from every facet of our society. And sadly, just as it was in, in Micah's day in this book, this dynamic seemed to be just as prevalent among the people of God as it was and is amongst those who do not profess Christ. The scriptures tell us that our Savior was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. Why? Why was he? Here he was, the king of righteousness himself, he who knew no sin, now constantly surrounded by vivid reminders of sin's impact on the world that he had created and called very good. Here he was, not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbly divested of the glories of heaven so that he could serve the greatest need of those who were his. And yet not only was he rejected, but he was also subjected to the barrage of iniquity stemming from an environment devoid of any acknowledgement of God. And so looking towards Jerusalem, he cried. He cried when he looked at that which he had created and what sin had done to it. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, we hear that Lot was distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man, it says, lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And that, brothers and sisters, that heart of sorrow that you have when, when you see what's going on around you that's not glorifying God, the sorrow that Lot experienced in, in Sodom and Gomorrah and that our Lord himself experienced as he walked the earth is what Micah is experiencing here in our text. And he articulates it in the strongest of terms, saying, woe is me. It is the same proclamation uttered by Isaiah when he came into the presence of God in Isaiah 6. It's the same proclamation made by Job in the height of his complaint in chapter 10, verse 15. In other words, there is a great level of emotional intensity here, a great yearning and concern for the lack of righteousness in the earth. And what was causing him to be so emotionally embroiled? I just said it. It was the absence of righteousness among the people of God in Micah's day, in Jerusalem. He communicates as much 
utilizing the imagery of a vineyard, much like Isaiah did in Isaiah 5. In Isaiah 5, there's a picture, or the prophet talks about a vineyard, and that vineyard is God planning his people, calling his people to represent them, and they were corrupt and turned to the gods of the nations around them instead of God. And here you find then in, in 5.7 it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. That is the same thing Mike is talking about. So with that Isaiah passage in mind, look at verse 1. He says, For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Now, I want you to, to think for a moment about a time when you were probably the hungriest you've ever been. Then imagine you went to a source that would normally be able to provide you with what would satiate your hunger, only to find it completely bare. Kind of like when I used to take my aunt's stuff and then not replace it and she would come home looking for it and it was gone, you see. And so she was dead hungry and had no recourse. That's the imagery Mike is using here to communicate how devoid of righteousness the place was, Jerusalem was. That assertion is reinforced by verse 2, which says, The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. He then goes on to qualify that statement by providing specific examples of the type of environment that existed in Jerusalem. We see that in verses 2 through 6. Listen. When we hear the words, love your neighbor as yourself, we typically think of Jesus being the one who uttered them. But God had actually uttered the prescription, that prescription to Israel way back in the book of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17 through 18. Here's what it says. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am God. God essentially signed that prescription we just heard, ending it by saying, I am the Lord. The word Lord there being the covenant name Yahweh. In spite of that, Israel and Judah, over the course of its history, disregarded that which you just heard, and the result was what you see in verses 2 through 6. Instead of loving one's neighbor, they were figuring out how to bring harm to them. They became hedonistic in their thinking. That is, became all about, it became all about ingratiating themselves at the expense of others. And so those in power... The principals and the judges were on the take, receiving bribes. They were brash, arrogant, not even attempting to hide their evil plans. But instead, as verse 3 says, they uttered the evil desires of their soul. The Apostle Paul, 
in the book of Romans, wrote of this dynamic of turning from God and the consequences thereof, writing, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, rootless, though they know God's righteous decree. So it can't be talking about people on the outside because it says, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And folks, it would be bad enough if things just happened way outside our home or, or way over there or whatever the case may be. But look what Micah says happens in the absence of God's presence. Notes, Micah notes that the things also got bad within one's own household. You see that in verse 6, which speaks of the members of one's household becoming one's enemy. Timothy spoke of this same type of environment in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 4. They're specifically mentioning the fact that folks in the last days would become disobedient to their parents. That is a violation of the fifth commandment. Folks, I submit to you that we are living in the type of environment that Micah describes. And so in the midst of all the ungodliness we see, what is the man of God to do? What is the woman of God to do? What are you supposed to do? How should you live in the midst of the things that you see in a culture, in a society that kicks the Bible out of school, that kicks God out of the marketplace of ideas, that has nothing, wants nothing to do with God, but wants to call that which is evil good and that which is good evil. How should you live in the midst of that? You see, there will always be a temptation to assimilate, to do like Judah and Israel did in the days of Micah. That is to adopt the ways of the world, to abandon the God of your salvation. There's always a temptation to say, and because, you know, I have family members who are such and such. I have this who's such and such. And so you water down the word of God and accept those things and embrace those things. But what are we what are we supposed to do? Time and time again, we hear Romans 12, 2 ringing in our ears. Do not be conformed to this word, this world. But the temptation to fold, to compromise is always there. Compromise to keep a job, to endear oneself to one's family member. So what are we to do? Micah models the answer for us. Our second point the resolve of the just, that is those who live by faith. Look at verse 7. Micah says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Folks, I don't know about you, but when I hear those words, but as for me, I get fired up. Because it reminds me of Joshua standing before the people of Israel saying, but as for me and my house, 
We will serve the Lord. It reminds me of Job saying, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. A young David saying, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Three Hebrew boys against all odds saying, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if not, if our God chooses not to deliver us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I tell you, I love them boys, Cedric, Meshach, and if you've been in my Sunday school, you know the last brother, a bad Negro. <laughs> and Peter and John, before the leaders of Israel, after being told to stop speaking about Jesus, rose up and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. These folks, brothers and sisters, like Micah, understood that come hell or high water, no matter how things seem to appear, it is better to trust in the God of your salvation, to wait on him than it is to gain the whole world and lose your soul. To not know and grow in the knowledge of your creator, they understood that God called them to love him with all their heart, soul, and mind. And that entails having what we today call a made-up mind. Having a made-up mind. Do you have a made-up mind? And not just because you love him, but because he loved you first. And as Peter said, after Jesus asked his disciples, do you want to go away as well? After he said some hard things, they walked away from him and he turned to the disciples. Do you want to walk away as well? And you know what they answered? Where, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Like Peter, Micah recognized that he was justly deserving, as all of us should recognize, justly deserving the wrath of God. But the grace and mercy of God had been lavishly distilled upon him. And thus his life which included all matters of justice, was in God's hand. You see that in verse 9. And folks, God does not promise us that if we trust in him, it will result in a happy, clappy moments and life and with no negatives. He does not promise that we will win every battle. But what he does promise is we will rise because Jesus did. We can experience a peace that passes all understanding in the midst of all things because we serve the Prince of Peace. And there will, be a, there will come a time when our faithfulness will be rewarded in full just as Christ was. In Types and Shadow, Micah communicates as much in verses 8 and 10 where he says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. 
When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is your God? Folks, in line with, with Micah's thought here, do you know what those who mock your God will ultimately say? Do you know what those who mock God today, all the folks who are against God today, all the people that sit around and say what your God has to say concerning any, the will of God, what any book has to say or any tradition has to say concerning the will of God is of no concern to this body. You know what all those folks will say one day? You don't have to guess. Philippians 2, it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You don't have to say amen. I will. Amen. So question, in light of everything you've heard thus far, what type or manner of people should you be? For the answer, let's look at verse 15 under our final heading, the, the intercession and, and sure hope of the just. After writing of the judgment that would come upon the land in verse 13, Micah resorts to praying not for all men, but for those he refers to as God's people. He says, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, he says. Here Micah is asking God, to restore his people to a time when they were most prosperous, like under King David. He prays or intercedes on their behalf, as we should today. We should pray and intercede for the others in the body of Christ. We should pray for those who are lost, that God would draw his elect to himself. We should be primarily a people of prayer in the midst of all things. And folks, in, in answer to Micah's prayer, we, we have a great articulation of the blessed hope that we have. Let me explain. In verse 11, 14, and 17, there are several allusions to Old Testament types. A day of building the walls, it looks like Nehemiah, if you see, right? When you look at 17, they shall lick the dust like a serpent. That's in the garden when Satan was crawling on the dirt, right? And, and as you go along, verse there, 15, 14, and 14, shepherd your people. Uh, let's go back beyond that, right? So in answer to that, here God alludes, if you will, to the deliverance, the time when they built the wall, the time when Satan was made to walk in the earth, but none of that is great, as great as what we see in verse 15. Look at verse 15. It says, as in the days when you came out, this is an answer to Micah's prayer. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. I will show them marvelous things. God answers Micah's prayer again by alluding to Israel, Israel's deliverance out of Egypt a deliverance which included 10 incredible, marvelous plagues, the last of which had folks walking, uh, waiting inside their homes whose doorposts were spattered with the blood of an unblemished lamb. So here God alludes to the works he did as marvelous. And those works 
Micah would have understood the Old Testament realities. But what he would not have known is the reality that we know today. For you see, guys, the marvelous work in the context of 11 through 17, there's a future already but not yet aspect to this. And so what I am saying to you is the marvelous work that we know of today, there is no greater marvelous work than the incarnation. There is no greater marvelous work than Simeon in Luke 2 seeing the baby Jesus. There is no greater work than Anna seeing the baby Jesus. There is no greater work than the cross. There is no greater work than the resurrection and the fact that Jesus Christ is exalted and sitting on the right-hand side and ever liveth to make intercession for us now. Micah is promised that God would do something incredible, marvelous, and guess what? Our God, who is always faithful, has delivered in spades. And he has delivered in ways that no one would have expected. Even those who were given the oracle of God did not understand uh, Isaiah 53 that talked about a suffering servant. They didn't understand that the God, our God would come through a virgin. Here's the thing. We always make up stuff in our mind and imagine how we think things are going to be. You know, when you talk about end times... People always had these charts showing how things are going to unfold and how it's going to be this way and how it's going to be that way. But let me tell you something. Remember the days of Noah? Jesus said that in the end, it will be like in the days of Noah. People will be given marriage and so on and so forth. And Noah went into the ark and he shut the door. And you know what happened when he shut the door? Something that had never happened in creation. It rained. No one had anticipated that something would happen outside the human imagination. What we are going to experience in Christ is going to be so mind-blowing that no chart can say it or articulate it. You hear me? And so when you see him talk about marvelous here, okay, and the marvelous, the part about it, if you go back up, and you look at verse 12, it says, In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river. These are the enemies of God in history. But guess what? The same way that God, Jesus Christ, hung on that cross, laid out and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and turned around and saved the same people who, try, who killed them in the same manner the God of the universe who is full of grace and mercy and who he's promised Abraham that his people will be from all tribes, tongue and nation is now turning around and the enemies of God himself are the people that he's going to redeem all to the praise of his glory. And guess what? You don't have to look any further to know which enemies he's talking about because you were one. It says why you were far off. He loved you and died for you. And so Micah is showing us that he is going to reach a remnant as he did here. That he is going to grab hold of his people through it all in the midst of everything that they ha that's happening. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus himself said it in Matthew 5, 6, I believe. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. They will be satisfied. So if you are sitting in this congregation and the things that are occurring in this world are dragging you every day 
If you're sitting in a cave, in your little man or woman cave in your house, and you're giving a pity party like Elijah, remember the same answer that Elijah got. God said, I got 7,000 more people kicking for me over yonder. So the earth is still full of God's remnant. And all the stuff that you see happening around you, do not allow yourself to be taken down. For the God that you serve is greater than your circumstances. And the God that you serve is greater than everything in the environment in which you are. And so you can look up, look forward, and spread the gospel knowing that God is going to draw those that belong to him. And in the midst of wickedness, his plans will still come to fruition. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you saved us, your enemies. We were indeed your enemies. The enmity between us and you, your word tells us that. But again, while we were far off, you loved us. You reached out to us. And so, Father, now as we see the things occurring around us in our culture, see people speedily walking away from the dictates of your word and being angry and even hate towards those who are yours. Father, we take heart in knowing that the people in Micah's day, the remnant, they experienced the same things, that Lot experienced the same things. But Father, we pray that you would have mercy on those in our society. We pray that you would have mercy on our leaders, those that are corrupt, we pray that like you did with us, that you would change their hearts. Those that don't want anything to do with you, they don't know you. And I pray that you would have mercy and reveal yourself to them. But Father, I ask that you would strengthen your church. Keep us strengthened. Keep us walking in your way. For if you do not keep hold of us, Lord God, we would not be able to say there but for the great grace of God go I. So we thank you that you drew us out of our own wickedness and pray that you would not allow us to walk in a manner that displeases you as those who were yours did throughout history. Instead, we ask that you would grab hold of us, cause us to be lights that shine in darkness. Use us all to the praise of your glory. Take us, Lord, and take our wills and make, them, make your will ours so that you might use us mightily. We thank you for the work that you're allowing us to do at this church already and ask that you would be glorified in and through everything that happens here at Pure Orchard. Again, all to the praise of your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.